So glad to be together while you're sitting and pulling out your Bible to get ready to be in the Word today in our study in Luke. I want you to know right out of the gate that at no point in my sermon today am I going to say anything about Damian Lillard and the Portland Heartbreakers, all right? <laughs> Not once, all right? No. This morning, I actually want to talk to you about art. I want to talk to you about art as you're getting settled and getting your Bible out. I want to talk to you about a piece of art that sold this week at auction for $110 million. Can you believe that? $110 million. This was a piece of art by a famous French impressionist named Claude Monet. All right, you've probably heard of him. I'm going to put this piece of artwork up. It was part of a series called Haystacks. Now look, someone looked at that piece of art and said, that is worth $110 million. Can you believe that? Look at that thing. It is actually beautiful. It's an amazing, amazing piece of art. If you know anything about art history, you know that Monet was very cutting edge. He was part of a movement called Impressionism. And Impressionism, they played with imagery. They played with the impression that a person would have when they looked at something, especially as it had to do with light and color, as light would change. And so when he painted this artwork, the thing you need to realize, this was very controversial. In fact, most art critics in the day, the late 1890s, hated this piece of art. Monet could not find a gallery in France that would display this series. And little did they know that in 2019, someone would pay $111 million for that. Isn't that crazy? That's how art is sometimes. One person looks at a painting and says, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's priceless. And another person looks at it, it's usually a person like me, and they go, I don't get it. <laughs> My wife looks at it and goes, beautiful. I look at it and go, what are those? Oh, haystacks, okay. That's how art works. Isn't that interesting? A couple years ago, a famous movie director named Sofia Coppola released an artsy film called Lost in Translation. I've got an image about that too. Remember this movie? Okay. Bill Murray, let's take that off. That's disturbing. That movie, that movie was extremely controversial. Critics loved it. And moviegoers hated it. How many of you saw this movie? A few of you, okay. How, keep your hand up if you understood the meaning of the movie. Okay, very few. There you go. Okay, right? People, people watched the movie and they left scratching their heads. Someone asked Roger Ebert, what's the, what's the deal? Why did critics love this movie? But the average moviegoer left going, huh? He said, this film transmitted on a different frequency than audiences are accustomed to receiving. They were just like, what? Art can be like that. Art can be like that. And he asked the question, why is it that someone can watch a film or see a, a painting and two people can leave with a completely different experience of that, of that thing? But did you know that we could actually ask the same question about the gospel? Like, why is it that two people hear the, the message about Jesus and 
they have a completely different response to that message. Have you ever thought about that? When I was in high school, I invited one of my best friends to come to youth group with me. His name was James. He came to youth group. He heard the gospel. And when he left, he vowed, I will never stop going to church for the rest of my life. That was amazing. So a month later, I invited my friend Mark. He came to youth group and heard the gospel and spent time with the people in our community. And when he left, he vowed, I will never go back to church again for the rest of my life. And I thought, hmm, what's the explanation for that? And it happens in the gospel of Luke. Why is it in the gospel of Luke that one woman comes and flings herself at the feet of Jesus and pours out her most precious perfume and weeps at his feet because she's been transformed by his mercy. And another person in the same room sits stony-hearted on the sidelines, Simon the Pharisee, either bored, ambivalent, or downright disgusted by the person of Jesus. Interesting. Have you ever thought about it? Why? Why does one person hear the gospel and go, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life? What a treasure. And another person hears the gospel and says, whatever. Or at best, or at worst, that's absolutely foolish. Jesus answers the question for us in Luke chapter 8. Will you turn there with me? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers have been waiting so patiently for me. They got really annoyed right there. <laughs> They're like, dude, we're standing back here waiting. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want a Bible in your hands today. Raise your hand. We want to give you a Bible if you don't own a Bible. But if you have five of those in your car, please bring them back next Sunday, all right? We need those. <laughs> Jesus is going to answer the question today with a little passage in Luke called the parable of the sower. Sound familiar? Perhaps you're thinking, what's a parable? You say, what is a parable? Well, today I'm going to give you a definition. In fact, this morning, I'm going to give you the most profound definition of a parable that I've ever come across in just a few minutes. But first, let's read Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Will you look at it with me? Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, this is Jesus, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and affirmities. Mary called Magdalene, remember her from Easter Sunday? Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, that is Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, 
Some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and it, as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as Jesus said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or if Jesus were teaching today, using modern vernacular, he might say, you've got ears, use them. Use them. You have ears, listen. It's odd, actually. What an odd thing to say. You got ears? Use them. In fact, the whole scene is somewhat odd. What's the purpose of this? This story that Jesus tells. What's Jesus doing? What does it all mean? I think, and I'm going to suggest today, that the key to understanding this passage is to notice that Luke uses three contrasts in this story. There are three contrasts that he unpacks. The first is a contrast between two kinds of crowds. Did you notice that? He talks about them in the first four verses. There's actually two crowds that have gathered around Jesus, and they're very different. So there's two kinds of crowds. The second contrast is a contrast between two kinds of soil. And the third contrast is a contrast between two kinds of ears. Or more correctly, you could say, between two kinds of hearing. And I think if we get these three, if we unpack what's happening here, you'll understand the parable. So what I, I want to do is I want to walk through these three contrasts quickly, and then at the end, I'm going to give you some practical stuff to do. All right? So we begin with contrast number one. Contrast number one is a contrast between two kinds of crowds. There are actually two crowds here. If you look at verses one through four, two crowds, they could not be more different. They've both gathered around Jesus. The first crowd is a group of devoted women and men who have given up everything to follow Jesus. Do you see that? And Luke tells us some of their names. He's already told us the names of the 12 disciples, the 12 male disciples. And then he says, but there were also, there were also women who were part of this group. There were the 12 apostles, and then there were this larger group of disciples, and many of them were women, which was very countercultural. Jesus had many women who followed him, and these women had been delivered from amazing spiritual bondage. Mary Magdalene, seven demons came out of her and many others, and this group of disciples, men and women, had been so transformed by Jesus that they left home and career and family. They pooled their resources, and they went with Jesus on mission, and they were devoted. That's one crowd, but there's another crowd, and it's very different. It's in verse 4. You probably saw it. Look at it. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. There's a second 
crowd. This crowd's really big. People gathered from town after town after town. Jesus was becoming very popular. He must have been an incredible communicator. Preacher, the healings, people flocked to be around Jesus. But here's what's interesting. It's not entirely clear how Luke feels about these crowds. Is he positive? It doesn't seem like it. Is he negative about this crowd? Or is he just kind of neutral? And when you read Luke, time and time and time again, it's not entirely clear. Luke is almost neutral about crowds. It's not necessarily negative, definitely not positive. The reasons for coming, their motives, what they're after... Luke is somewhat neutral about crowds. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, crowds can be very fickle. (laughs) You know, one moment they're trying to take Jesus and put him on a throne. The next moment a crowd wants to take Jesus and throw him off a cliff. (laughs) One moment a crowd is crying out, Hosanna to God in the highest. And a few days later, there's a crowd screaming, crucify him. (laughs) Crowds can be fickle, right? I once heard a, a pastor say, it's easy to draw a crowd, but a crowd is not the same thing as a congregation. He said, it's easy to draw a crowd. All you have to do to draw a crowd is Stop saying hard things and start saying novel things. Stop speaking timeless truths and start speaking things that sound like they're brand new, maybe because they are. (laughs) It's easy to draw a crowd, but a crowd is not the same thing as a church congregation. Amen? You can talk back to me because this is not a crowd, all right? You were a congregation. (laughs) Amen. A couple years ago, I was reading in an online leadership periodical for pastors, and I came across an article called How to Kill a Church. Now, when you're a pastor, okay, and you read the title of an article called How to Kill a Church, you want to read that article. It was like clickbait, okay? Here's what it said. I won't read the whole thing, but he said, want to fatten a church for slaughter? The steps are below. And then in quotes, this is a true story. Step one, launch a church for people who don't like the church with a dynamic leader, with big ideas and self-help teaching. Step two, care less about biblical death discipleship and leadership character then you care about inspirational messages, excitement, creativity, the Sunday experience. Make sure that the success is built around the leader's brand so that he and the church are largely synonymous. Step three, see the place attract large crowds, right? Step four, see the success, go to the leader's head, make excuses and accommodations as his short temper, control issues, lack of accountability, 
began to take their toll. This guy's got personal issues or something. Accept the loss of numerous quality leaders as the collateral damage necessary to win the attendance war in your city's ministry marketplace. Step five, continue staking everything on the killer weekend experience. Step six, watch the leader eventually crash and burn. Step seven, watch as your church hemorrhages attendees who were there for the brand. Step eight, don't learn your lesson and repeat the same process, right? Isn't that that interesting? That's just one way to kill a church, by the way. You could probably kill a church a lot of other ways. But here's the point. A crowd is easy to gather, and Jesus knows it. He knows this. But Jesus is after something a little bit deeper. And so what does he do? He teaches in parables. What's a parable, you ask? I'm going to give you a definition. I'm going to give you the most profound definition of a parable that I've ever heard in just a minute. But first, I need to give you contrast number two. Contrast number two, write this down, is a contrast between two kinds of soil. Two kinds of soil. This is the purpose of the story that Jesus tells. He's talking about kinds of soil. In fact, in your Bible, the heading probably says something like the parable of the sower. Is that what it says in your Bible? I actually think that's not the best kind of caption for this parable. It should be called the parable of the soils. That's what it's really about. And some of you are going, wait a minute. There's more than two. There's four here, right? You're right. There's four soils in the parable. There's the hard soil of a path. Soil one, there's rocky soil. There's soil with thorns in it. Did you see that? And then there's some good soil. But what I want to show you is if you, can, if you distill that down, it's really a contrast between two basic kinds. The first kind is a, is a kind of soil that's ideal for a seed to sink in. And the other three kinds are, are, are a kind of soil that's less than ideal. The seed does not quite have the impact. And the people who were there that day were listening to this parable, and many of them were probably going, I have a feeling this is a metaphor for something, right? I get the, I get the parable at the level of, I mean, everyone in, that, everyone in that culture understood basic agriculture. So at one level, the story was like, I totally get it. But there were some people who had ears to hear, who were thinking, something tells me there's a little bit more going on here. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so what I want to do is I want to show you a little bit more. There's a couple things to observe about this parable. Look back with me at verses 5 through 8. The first thing that I want to show you is that in ancient Israel, almost every farm was, the, the, the land was very diverse It had rocky soil and paths and really good soil. And so in ancient Israel, the way that a sower would sow seed, it was called the broadcast method. Maybe you've heard of this. A sower would, he had a a satchel on on his side with seed in it, and he would walk through his land 
the, the entire piece of property with packed soil, rocky soil, soil with weeds in it, and some good soil. And he would pull seed out and he would just fling it as far as he could. And the seed would just disperse. There's a very interesting lesson about evangelism in this, which I'm going to talk about later. But what you need to realize is that the sower, had, the sower had no problem casting seed as far as he could, knowing a lot of this seed is going to land in good soil. Some of it will land in soil that's packed, and it'll sit at the surface, and it won't penetrate, and birds will eat it. Some of it will land in rocky soil where it'll immediately spring up, but it won't be able to put down roots because there's rocks, and so the plant will die. Some of the soil will land in and it'll grow up among all these thorns that are competing for resources, and those plants also will not make it. But some soil will settle in, some seed will settle in deep to this really rich, good soil, the kind of soil gardeners love to watch run through their hands. Any gardeners out there, you know? I talk to you and you're so strange. I love you, but gardeners, they, they get down in the dirt and you can see them and they're just holding the soil and they smell it and it's strange. But that soil that's so rich, that's the kind of soil we have here in the Lamette Valley, right? It's amazing. It's rich. Jesus says, there's really only two kinds. There's that kind, it's... It's ideal, it's rich. That's the kind where the seed can go in deep. In fact, when Jesus talks about that soil in verse 8, he says that the seed that hits that soil, it goes into the soil. In every other kind of soil, if you, if you study, the seed either sits on the surface or it, it never quite penetrates, but in good soil, that seed gets in deep. It's rich, there are nutrients, and the soil and the seed flourishes there. And so you say, well, what, what's the meaning of all this? It begs the question, what makes good soil good? What is it? It has to do with hearing. It has to do something with the way we hear. That's the third contrast. So Jesus contrasts crowds, then he contrasts soils. And then he says, and, and here's, here's the big one. There's actually two kinds of hearing. When Jesus finished speaking this parable, he shouted at the top of his lungs. Imagine there's a crowd that's gathered. He's, he shares this sort of cryptic story. And then he says, do you have ears? Use them. As if to say, there's, there's two kinds of hearing. Apparently, it's possible to hear something without really getting to the meaning. The words come in, and, it, and the words make sense, but, but for some reason, the person doesn't have ears to hear at a deeper level, and so it never penetrates. And parables can actually cause this to happen. Imagine you're there that day, you're in this crowd, Jesus says this, this he, he teaches this story, and then full stop, that's all you hear. How many people would walk away and go, what was that? 
right? And even the disciples need an explanation. Look with me at verse 9 through 15. Even the disciples long for an explanation of this parable. Because they say, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, here's what Jesus said to them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. Why? So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. We're going to talk about it. Okay, we'll get there. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches of the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Amazing. The disciples hear the parable. The crowds hear the parable. The disciples go into a a private space with Jesus, and they say, we didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> Can you explain it to us? And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you the explanation. What is a parable, you say? I'm going to give you the most profound definition that I've ever heard. And I'm actually going to give it to you right now, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Write this down. Here's the definition of a parable. A parable is a story that only yields its meaning to the person who actually wants it. That's what a parable is. It's a story, it's an illustration, it's a riddle, but it's a story that only coughs up its ultimate meaning to the person who longs for that meaning with the desire to scratch a little bit deeper. Parables both reveal truth and conceal truth. They reveal it to people who are earnest with good soil in their hearts, who want to hear, who long to know more and seek but also parables work to conceal truth to people who have no interest, no desire, who are perfectly content to stay at the surface of what they've heard and say, it's, just, it's a truism about a guy who's throwing seed. I get it. And then they move on with their lives. How interesting. Can I tell you something? This is not like the modern day sermon illustration, okay? Pastors, we use sermon illustrations, stories, because we want to make it easier for 
the congregation to understand what's happening. And we work really hard at this and we feel a lot of pressure. An illustration has to be funny and winsome and great. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. But Jesus was doing something different with parables. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, I want to preach in parables because I need to test the hearts of this crowd. Why are they here? Are they here just for the miracles? Are they here for the pizzazz? Do they want to see the the pop and the fizzle and all the amazing stuff? Or are they here because they want to get at that gospel treasure sort of hiding just beneath the surface? Are they willing to scratch? Are they willing to think? Are they willing to dig and get just under the surface where that truth has been veiled with a story or a riddle? How interesting. My daughter Bridget turned 16 this week. I'm telling you this part one so that you'll stay off the roads for about three months, all right? (laughs) She turned 16. And last night we had this epic birthday celebration where a group of Bridget's friends went on sort of a scavenger hunt in downtown Portland. And I wrote all of these riddles. I called the game Riddles and Rewards. And so what I would, they would open an envelope and there was a riddle in the envelope. And if they solved the riddle, they went to the place that the riddle is about. And then they got a second envelope with a gift card and they got to, you know, go to that place and enjoy it. And it was, it was really fun. Riddles and rewards. And so it was a really fun game. And they were pretty quick. They solved these riddles pretty quick. Do you want to play the game just real quick? Do you want to see a couple of these? Do you want to try? Okay, let's see if you're better than a group of 16-year-old girls. All right. Here's riddle number one. Where is this in downtown Portland? Riddle number one. Roses are red, violets are blue, sprinkles on these stars make dreams all come true. Solving this riddle is better than neat. It means that you're in for a wonderful treat. Blue Star Donuts. Good. Some of you are like, dude, what are you talking about? Okay, do you want a really hard one? You have to think like a 16-year-old girl, which is normally not advised, but in this case... Head to the store that sounds like Gamora. Her caked on, what? Sephora. Thank you, 16-year-old girl. Her caked on, (laughs) her caked on green makeup is quite the horror. But when you are finished, you'll look so darn pretty. So don't take too long with this riddle that's witty. (laughs) Sephora, it's a makeup store. Here's one more. See if you can do it. Down in the lobby, there's a booth just for pictures. There's coffee and couches. It's perfect for hipsters. The name of this place trumps the jacks, queens, and kings. Now head to the floor where the lobby bell rings. Somebody said it. Ace Hotel. Ace Hotel. Good. I'm pretty good at riddles. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Okay, here's one from Jesus. Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
full stop. And people are going, what? (laughs) What does that mean? It's almost as if Jesus is using a parable to test my heart. I think that's what Jesus said here when he said, to the crowds I speak in parables so that hearing, they they may not hear. And seeing they may not understand. It kind of depends. Depends on what? It depends on the condition of their heart. Do they want gospel truth, the treasure of the gospel? Are their ears open? Do they long to hear? Not at the surface level, but do they have this itch to scratch beneath and go, there's something else happening here. I want to know what it is. I want gospel truth. Jesus says, it all comes down to how you hear. If you look at the parable, explanation of the parable, in all four kinds of soils, they always hear. They, all four hear. Soil one, they hear, but it's at the surface. It doesn't get in deep and, and it gets robbed away. Soil two, they hear too, but there's, it's shallow. It's, it's, there's immediate joy. It's like a match. And it burns out as quickly as it ignited. But they hear, they hear the, the gospel. The seed of the word goes in their ears. Soil three, they hear, but their lives are distracted by worldly pursuits and wealth and the accumulation of things. And those are like weeds that grow up and choke out the gospel. And soil four, they hear too, but it's the kind of hearing that's deep. Jesus describes it, good soil, where they they hear, not only they hear, look at verse 15, they hold on to the seed. They, they, it's almost as if when the seed of the gospel enters those ears and that heart, a person recognizes what I just heard is the single most profound treasure in the world. And they grab a hold of it not just temporarily, but Jesus says, look at this. He says, they hold fast, verse 15, in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. It happens over time. Good heart with a desire to hear. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you a question this morning? How is your spiritual hearing How well do you hear the word of Christ in your life? How how much does your heart ache when you go to the Bible study or the community group or when you come on Sunday morning? Are you humble? Are you longing for truth? It's not just are, are my ears open The question is, is my heart open? Is it ready? Is it the good kind of soil that's soft and rich where gospel truth can get in deep, bear fruit? Such a critical question. 
And Jesus has one more thing to say about it. Look at, he, he tells another parable. Verse 16, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. This is another parable. And the modern day hearers of Jesus' time would have totally understood this. When you, in ancient Israel at nighttime, it was pitch black. So in a household, you would light a lamp so that the whole household could see. No one would cover a lamp. A covered lamp is, it's, it's like an oxymoron. The two words don't go together. Covered lamp, it's like decaf coffee. It makes no sense, all right? <laughs> Government intelligence, there's no, there's no sense there. A covered lamp makes no sense. You don't cover a lamp. If you cover a lamp, it immediately extinguishes it. And Jesus says, that's, that's the purpose of the parables though. No, wait a minute. You don't light a lamp and then cover it. And then look at ver- the next verse. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Look at this. Take care then how you hear. Pay attention. This is for Adam. This is for you. Take care how you hear. For the one who has more, uh, take care then how you hear. For as the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Jesus says, this is the purpose of the parables. I, I am, the, the purpose of the parable is to illuminate. It is to reveal truth. However, it needs ears that are open for that truth to come in and get in deep. So, take care how you hear. And then in just a minute, we won't read this. But you can read this later. Jesus is then teaching and his mother and brothers show up and they're, and, they're, and they're outside, the crowd's there and they say, Jesus, come out, you know. We want, we want to talk to you, Jesus. It's this very public moment. It's like people are like, Jesus, your mom's here, you know. It happened to me in junior high a lot. Adam, your mom's here. Jesus, your mom is here. And Jesus says, my, you know who my mother and brothers are? My mother and brother, my family are people who hear the word of God and obey it. That's what the community of Jesus is. Take care how you hear. That's the purpose of the parables. Now, here's what's going to happen to you. We're going to study Luke. And there will be moments where we'll come to a place where Jesus teaches a parable. And now you know what the definition is. This is a story that will only yield its truth if I want it. Oh. And you're gonna, we're going to encounter some amazing parables. So good. So you say, okay, help make this practical. I will. This is really fast. Let me... Can you write these down? Take these with you. They're very, they're very simple. They're very straightforward. They come right from the sermon. But sometimes it just helps to have someone say, do this. Make sure you do this. Okay. Here's three. 
practical things. Number one, never stop tending the soil of your own heart. Never stop. You can't fix someone else's heart. You can't change someone else's heart. There's only one heart that you can influence, and it's your own. Pay attention. How is the condition of my heart? I had a brother come this week on Friday, a, a, a gentleman in our church. He's been following Jesus for years. Very mature Christian, super godly. And he came to, to meet with me to pray for someone in his life that he's worried about. And you know what's amazing? In the course of an hour, this brother constantly confessed his own weaknesses, sin, brokenness, insecurity. I remember thinking, this, this brother should be talking about stuff on the other end of the spectrum. And here he is, he's so tenderhearted. <laughs> he's so humble. He's so aware of his own need for Christ. I remember thinking, wow, I want to grow up to be just like you. And let me tell you something. I have a feeling that this brother, the seed of the gospel is just constantly getting in deep into his life. His soil is just so rich, right? Never stop tending to your own heart. That's number one. Here's number two. Never stop learning how to listen to the word of Christ. Don't stop learning how to listen. Listening is not automatic, okay? This is not automatic, especially when it comes to the gospel. You have to practice. You have to work on this. You have to prepare. You know what? If you, um, if you roll into church hectic and scatterbrained and, and stressed out and, and you've had a big fight, with your spouse. That never happens, but let's just say it did. Let's say you had a big fight right before church and then you sit down. Have you ever noticed it's really hard to be there and to really listen? And it might be just, you haven't prepared. In fact, life has made it such that you're not prepared. And so my counsel would be never stop learning how to listen. Learn how to listen. Learn how to listen to a sermon. Take notes. Listen for moments of emphasis. Learn how to listen when you're in your Bible study or your community group. Ask the question, am I humble right now before the word of Christ? Am I willing to have the word of Christ say to me things that I don't want to hear? Or do I only like hearing the parts of the word of Christ that I want to hear? Learn how to listen, right? And then finally, and this is fast. So never stop tending the soul of your own heart. Never stop learning how to listen. And then finally, never stop sowing the seed of the gospel in your life. Part of the purpose of this parable is that because Jesus has commissioned us, we become the sowers now. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus said to his disciples, go now to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations, preaching, baptizing, 
he takes the idea of a sower and he says, do you know who the sower is now with the word of Christ, the gospel word? The sower is you. And the sower is me. And Jesus says, part of your function in this world is almost like a farmer with a, with a satchel on your side and you walk through the world and you, as often as you can, you just lift up the name of Jesus. You just talk about the glory of God. You're not responsible for the soil where those seeds land. You cannot control it. You never know when you're going to throw seed and someone will say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm dumber for the last five minutes of my life or something like that. Or you throw the seed of the gospel, you share your faith and someone says, why have you never told me this before? Kathy and I went to a conference, an evangelism conference, and we heard a missionary speak. His name is Elliot Clark. He served in the, in the mountains of Central Asia in a predominantly Muslim community. And he told a story. I'll never forget this story. His family, he had moved his family back to the States, and a year later, they went back to their little village in Central Asia. And when he was there, there was a young man who was there who he had never spent time with because he just assumed this young man is so closed. He's so hard. He wants nothing to do with me, Christianity. And this young man said, I would love to just have coffee with you. So they had coffee together and this missionary, they talked about small talk and things about politics and culture and education. And then finally, Elliot, he worked up the courage and, and he said, he said, Haman, the, the young man's name was Haman. He said, what do you think I believe? Like if you were to describe Christianity to me, how would you describe it? And the young man described Christianity and it was totally the opposite of gospel religion. It was works righteousness. You, gotta, you have to please God through all of these righteous works. And Elliot said, it's interesting because Christianity is exactly the opposite of that. I'm a Christian because God sent his one and only son into the world because I could not earn God's favor. And this one and only son, whose name is Jesus, with love in his heart, he went to a cross and he laid down his life for me and for my sins. And by his grace, I've been saved and forgiven. And he shared all this and Haman sat back in his seat and he, he looked mad. And he was like, you lived in my village for 10 years. Why did you never tell me this? <laughs> we could have talked about this. And Elliot told that story and I was so convicted. And I thought, Adam, don't ever stop sowing the seeds of the gospel. You just never know. You never know. Amen? Amen. And that's for you too. You never know. You never know. You can't control the soil. You don't need to control the soil because you have the most powerful seed that the world has ever known, the message of the gospel. Sow it. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come and we'll... Um,
We'll go to the table. Father, we need the gospel of Luke because it is so rich and there's layers and layers and layers of meaning that we need in our lives. And so we want to thank you. Thank you for the wisdom of Christ. Thank you for the parables that hold up for us in slightly veiled way, deep truth that we long for. I pray for our church as we study God, the gospel of Luke, that we would quest for that truth. We would search for it. We would scratch beneath the surface and that we would be rewarded with rich, deep gospel truth that will change us, Lord. And so we thank you, Father, for this. As we go to the table this morning, remind us what a privilege it is to know Jesus as Savior. And I pray for those who've come who are considering Christ or new to church that they would know how much you love them, that they would know how welcome they are here, Lord. I pray. And it's in Jesus' name I pray it. Everyone said. Amen.